Sorry, I'm coming. Okay, um, it's good to see you, Julie. Hi, it's good to see you again. Tracy, it's good to see you. Um, Kathy, all of you, it's good to see you guys. Um, I've got so much on my mind tonight, I'm afraid I'm not going to get close to getting to the heart of it. And, and I, I, I hope you got my email earlier. Um, I'm, I'm so aware that our, our culture was partly created by Freud, and I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating that at all. Um, Freud came into a Darwinian culture. We were already in the sciences, you know, when Freud came along, and then Freud took a scientific approach to our psyche and added to what we, what I've been calling the ideological, the sort of rationalistic quality of our culture. In some of the modern works we've read, not quite Hawthorne, but Hawthorne and Melville are on the verge of it, but Hemingway certainly, when we did Hemingway, and Dostoevsky's Brothers, there's no way we could have read those works and not been aware that something, a paradigm shift was taking place. Something was happening in the world as a, as a direct result of the sciences um, um, gaining the influence they did, you know, in, in the way that we think. And so much of what happened created this conflict between two radically different ways of reading the world one that was scientific and one that was religious or biblical. So we've all, we've all grown up in, a, in an age in which um, those two habits of mind are constantly in conflict. And even though we're going back to Sophocles, so we're going back to a pre-Christian pagan dramatist, um, we're actually going back to one of the sources of modern approaches to the psyche. Freud, Freud based a lot of his thinking on Oedipus Rex. So um, I, I just hope somehow we can do justice to the tensions that exist in our mind um, by going back to Freud. So um, you, I can you, say this on behalf of us real scientists. We never gave Freud much thought. <laughs> so I, I, went, I went into this with an open mind. So okay. how Freud came up with what he came up with after reading this, I haven't a clue. Okay, good. Just, I was thinking the same exact thing. Yeah, good. I, I, I'm fine, man. <laughs> who, who, and I know Carl's the same way. Who, who needs a physical room when you guys are present? That's, that's the first high five I've seen in what, in the six, eight months we've been together. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm so glad for you, that you said that, Fred, but I think, I think most of you know that one of my larger concerns is, is cultural, what's going on in our culture at large, that we've got a, for me, there's a greater problem than reading literature, it's, it's the effect that this has, and my concern is um, heavily on the pop, the the effect that Freud had on the popular mind. Mm. So scientists may be skeptical, but I, I personally believe we're, we're just beginning to come out of a Freudian way of looking at the world. Um, it's been a long time coming, but but there can't be any question about the effect that he had on the popular mind, on movie and arts and 
because for a long time um, he he just dominated the way we looked at the psyche. Anyway, we're gonna we're gonna go back, so I hope we can I hope we can do justice to that. Um, let's let's start. What do you want? Can I have that? Yeah, I'd like to. Um, I'd like to sim. I'm going to mute you guys all. Anytime you want to come in, jump in. Okay. Um, I hope I hope some of this stuff helps. But what I what I want to do today, I, I actually thought about doing the Jonah story, the end of the Jonah story, because it was a reading a week ago, and I just think it's it's a beautiful story about learning how to forgive. You remember Jonah was asked to go to the Ninevites, and he swallowed. By the way, I really think that's at the heart of the Moby Dick story, but but he 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 he's swallowed by the whale when the shipmates get rid of him. He he's spit up on on the land and goes through the town, and the the Ninevites repent, and Jonah goes away sulking and angry because he's Jewish. He makes the point of his being Jewish, and he hates the Ninevites. So to see them repent and be forgiven by God is really upsetting to him. So the story ends with Jonah going outside the city and sulking, if you remember. He goes out and sets up what he can in the way of help. It's, it's in the desert and he's roasting. God puts a tree over him. God takes care of him. And after a day, God um, um, sends a worm to eat the tree. And then he goes to him and says, um, "Do you something like? Do you do well to get angry? You know, at the at the wor- at the worms who eat the tree or the tree." And Jonah says, "Yeah, he does do well. He's really angry. He's, he's not he's not going to give up his spite. He's right now. He's really angry at God, and he's sulking. And then he um, he comes back again and and he says, "Is it well to be angry at the plant when it's to feel something to feel something for it?" And Jonah says, "Yeah." And then God asks, it's something to this effect, if you would feel bad for the tree when you had nothing to do with taking care of it, God is so much wiser than the rest of us. When you had nothing to do with the care of it, (laughs) does it make any sense to be angry at the Ninevites when you spent so much time trying to help them? And there are, I don't remember what the numbers, let's say hundreds of thousands of Ninevites who were converted. So... It's a beautiful story of, of, of learning to forgive your enemies and not being angry with God. Um, but it was, it was a narrative, and we've been doing long stuff for a while, so I, I thought we'd go back and do a very short lyric. So if you didn't get them, you can just listen, but you should have gotten them on my last email, and, and I included them in our poetry packet, so they're there. They're two very, very short poems and the reason I wanted to put them together is that the two of them show the two poles of the lyric tradition. And if you remember Auden's poem, the Hore, Canonica, the, the Canonical Hours, you remember there was that section about the two poles there. One of them looking back to Eden and the other one looking forward to um, the New Jerusalem. So there was the Edenic man and there was the uh, utopian. Hmm? utopian yeah the utopian thanks doc for the those two figures so one of them is backward looking to something that we've lost and one of them looks forward to something we all long for so those two emotional expressions k 
capture the whole range of our emotional life. This nostalgia, looking back, longing for what we lost, for the, for the garden. The garden has been one of the central images of all lyric poetry. Looking back to the garden, long um, wanting to recover that perfection we enjoyed with each other and God, and looking forward to the New Jerusalem, to that perfection. So it's that movement from the garden to the city, an old way, a new way, um, that came into existence with um, Christ's atonement. So that's the range of the lyric. All the lyrics that we've read could actually be placed somewhere um, in that um, in that scheme. Okay. So here's Hausman um, from a collection of poems called the Shru um, Shropshire Lad. Into my heart, an air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires, what farms are those? That's the land of lost content. I see it shining plain, the happy highways where I went and cannot come again. Okay, remember the lines, remembered hills, that wind from that old country. It's the land of lost content. So I'll read it once more just to, um, to enjoy it again, okay? <coughs> Into my heart, an air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires? What farms are those? That's the land of lost content. I see it shining plain, the happy highways where I went and cannot come again. It's a, um, it's a land we've lost. We can't come to it again. Okay. This is from William Blake's collection. Um, there were two, lots of poems, but two of the major lyrics, two collections of lyrics were what he called poems from experience and poems from innocence. And they lined up like that. They were parallels. So he'd take um, a subject like the little lost boy, black boy, and he would show it from innocence and then from experience, from joy to suffering. And he lined up those poems that were um, dealing with the same topic, but from those two different perspectives. This is one of the poems from Songs of Experience. And this one has to do not with that land we've lost, those blue-remembered hills that we can't come to again. Um, this is about a longing for what we believe is ahead of us, where we want to go, to, f to find the fulfillment for our deepest desires, deepest longings, okay? Ah, sunflower, weary of time, who countest the steps of the sun, seeking after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done. Where the youth pined away with desire and the pale virgin shrouded in snow, Arise from their graves and aspire where my sunflower wishes to go. That longing of all things in creation for their fulfillment. I'll read it once more. Ah, sunflower, weary of time, who countest the steps of the sun, seeking after the sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done. 
where the youth pined away with desire and the pale virgin shrouded in snow arise from their graves and aspire where my sunflower wishes to go. Okay. I should have asked this earlier, but I got too carried away because I'm... Robert, did you turn on the recorders? They're on, Doc. Um, I, um, any prayer requests before we start with um, Sophocles? Any prayer requests? So glad to be with you guys again. God, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life um, from you. We would not be here, but for you, for the gift of yourself at Mass this morning. Um, where did I go? The Acts of the Apostles. What was it? Oh. oh, yeah, the um, um, the first reading this morning was about Paul's conversion and God calling him out when he was persecuting Christians and what happened to him. The, actually, really interesting because of the, the oracles, the prophecies that Paul experienced. We're going to be in a world of prophecies when we start Sophocles. Um, Paul, I ask your special prayers, please. Um, What is there to say? You were exemplary more than in what happened to you. You took all of your sins. <laughs> Christ beat you over the head with a light, turned you around. Um, you had to suffer a silence for a while. Couldn't have been easy because you were so zealous. And then you turned all that zeal um, to bringing people to Christ. Pray for us, please, all of us. Um, we've become so soft in our world. You did nothing but endure hardships, imprisonments, beatings, dangers. Um, some ways you taught us to live, to let go of this world, to not let the allure of comforts keep us from you. Strengthen us in our efforts to um, go to Christ. Um, um, Christ um, bless all of us in our work that we're doing to draw closer to you. Let none of us, none of us despair of our sins, no matter what they are. Help us always to turn to you. Strengthen in us a spirit of fortitude to hold tight when things get hard. Um, and maybe more importantly, to be glad, even in the midst of our sins. You call us to you. Um, there's a great virtue in overcoming our sins. There's something great to be said for keep going, no matter what's going on around us. So strengthen us in our efforts and help us to find strength in these works that we're reading because suffering is so much part of all of them. It will certainly be so tonight. Oedipus is going to gouge out his eyes. Um, he's so horrified by his sins. Um, my own personal belief is that he's never been so beautifully as, as he is at the end. Um, strengthen every one of us in our faith in you, no matter what is going on in our lives. 
um, to be glad for all the gifts that we've been given in this world. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, very, very quickly. Last week, um, we finished up the Oristia. I just want to touch on a couple of the major themes there. They will carry over in some ways to Sophocles, but just, just a very quick review. At the heart of the Oristia is this great presumption on the part of man. It started with Tantalus and then went to his son Pelops. And, and for me, um, greatly, one of the most overlooked concerns of that whole trilogy was eating. It all started with Tantalus in a feast with the gods and he cut up his kids. So in an interesting way for me, even though it's people don't tend to give it much importance, I do, it happens to be an inversion of the Eucharist that somehow, I think because e we can't live without food. Um, it, it's the source of life for us, take food away and we die. But there was this huge presumption on the part of um, Tantalus that took the form of eating. We know from the Divine Comedy, from Dante, if you remember the Divine Comedy, as Dante approaches the very end of the Inferno, all of the, all of the episodes deal with eating. Uh, the Ugolino episode, when Ugolino's eating on Ruggiero's head, and the last image we have is of Satan eating on Brutus, Cassius, and uh, Judas. And I, I remember when we did that, I suggested that if hell is the opposite of heaven, that that was an appropriate image. Because in Christ, we have Christ constantly giving of himself infinitely, of his infinite nature as a God in the Eucharist. He's constantly feeding us, offering us his life. He said, I'm the bread of life, unless you eat of me. So this image of eating is not small. It, it, it set off the whole trilogy. But at the heart of it is this presumption on man's part that his arrogance, that he's going to test the gods. Um, and we followed what happened through the whole trilogy until at the very end, um, you know that Orestes takes his mother's life and then has to answer with it, answer for it with a kind of madness. And the whole trilogy ends with um, Athena um, and Orestes and Apollo and the Furies together in Athens in um, a, a courtroom battle. And I just um, I want to touch on just a couple of the themes and then read a couple of lines just to call it to mind. Remember that the role of the father is crucial in all of this, that there's a difference between um, the, the vengeance that Orestes um, does on behalf of his father and what Clytemnestra does to her husband because of her anger at him for killing their daughter. Um, um, we talked about the importance of prophecies in that, in that trilogy. Prophecies occur in each one of the works. Um, what happens at the end is a direct result of prophecy that Apollo comes to Orestes, tells him he has to um, work out this vengeance. Remember, it's, it's when he um, hears the, the dream that Clytemnestra has that the, 
prophecy is confirmed and he goes on to complete the job. And then he's told to go to Apollo's um, temple and then finally to Athens. So the whole action um, has a prophetic element. It's, it's the fruit of a prophecy working in the lives of man. At the very end, um, when they're in Athens, Athena um, meets with Orestes and the Furies and Apollo, and she has to mediate between these two claims. The Furies are saying they can't be ignored because what Orestes did was wrong. And Orestes is saying that what he did was under the inspiration of Apollo. So she has to mediate between the two of them. She says on page 151, The matter is too big for any mortal man who thinks he can judge it. Even I have not the right to analyze cases of murder. It's as if some of these things involving the supernatural, and I hope everybody hears this, it's as if, it's as if some of these things, courtroom cases, because, you know, they, they become a commonplace in American TV, um... We don't acknowledge anything transcendent in man. But here, the, the ancient poets acknowledge that there is something transcendent. And because there's something divine going on, it, it's, in, in one sense, law is not capable of cutting through it. Dostoevsky held the same view, by the way. You know that from the end of Brothers. Law's too dull an instrument to, to try to cut through cases of justice when they might involve the gods. But we go ahead as if they don't. It's something we have to do because we have to do our best to justice, but so many of the works have been teaching us that we have to do that, but very often at a cost we don't see. That was true of Billy Budd. You know, people can have decisions about that, but there's something divine working in what happens with Veer and Budd. Um, it, was, it was true of Demetrius. It's been true of so much of what we've been doing. Athena's saying it's too fine for her to make a judgment. She, um, um, we get the, the arguments back and forth on the two sides. Um, and then finally, um, a vote is called for, and if you remember, the vote is even. That the, that the ballots are even on page 162. The man before us has escaped the charge of blood. The ballots are an equal number for each side. We already know that she votes for the man for the reasons that she's given, so the case is decided. Orestes will leave, Apollo will leave, and that leaves Athena with the Furies, and the Furies angry and resentful because they've been um, humiliated, that their voice has been ignored. Um, on 164, they that could treat me so, I, the mind of the past, to be driven underground, outcast like dirt. All, all they can feel is um, resentment and grudges at being ignored. Athena says, I will bear your angers. You are elder born than I, and in that you are far wiser than I, yet still this gave me two intelligence not to be despised. If you go away into some land of foreigners, I warn you, you will come to love this country. So she's using all of her persuasive powers to remind them of what they'll lose if they continue in what they're doing and tries to persuade them that there's something to benefit them if they will stay. 
page 166. A place free of all grief and pain, take it for yours. We will give you this here. Um, we will respect your older years. You will have a place. So um, Aeschylus is making clear that the answer is to not um, nullify the Furies, to not black and white dominate them. Um, the answer is to make a place for them, but in a different spirit. So it's not just two black-white sides in conflict with each other. The Chorus says, if I do take it, shall I have some definite powers? No household shall be prosperous without your will. You will do this, you will really let me be so strong, so we shall straighten the lives of all who worship it. Now the, the Furies make it clear that they accept those terms on condition that when somebody does something wrong, their voices won't be ignored. So the Furies make it clear that there is something that men have to do. They have to take seriously that their crimes will be answered. They can't just be explained away. Because if they are, the Furies will reassert themselves. Um, and the Furies go on after Athena continues to placate them. This is my prayer, civil war. Fattening on men's ruins shall not thunder in our city. Let not the dry dust that drinks the black blood of citizens through passions for revenge and bloodshed for bloodshed be given our state to prey upon. Let them render grace for grace. Let love be their common will. Let them hate with single heart. Much wrong in the world thereby is healed. When they're collectively going to hate, let it be directed at something wrong and generally outside themselves. So Athena says, Goddesses, farewell. Mine to lead as these attendants to wear by the sacred light. New chambers are given. Go then, sped by majestic sacrifice from these, plunged beneath the ground. She praises them, and it's because of her praise and the place that she makes for them that they're transformed from these vengeful furies into the humanities. And you know the, the root connection between humanities and Eucharist. To be thankful, to be blessed. So what we've been experiencing is the is a shift from this old world rooted in violent passions of revenge and getting back um, to something close to a mercy. Um, and a transformation has worked um, that's the product of something Athena does. Now the question that I want to ask tonight, just and, and I just want to take a few minutes on it because I, I want to get on to um, Oedipus Rex. What's the difference between that old way of life, basically, and the new way? What's the difference between Argos as a city and Athens? Because it's, it's absolutely clear in, the, in what Athena does with the humanities that she identifies herself with the city. It's like God identifying himself with Israel when he named Israel is my people. So when he gave Israel the name, this, this is from Paul, this is biblical. He was saying, this is my people as a unity. They are my children. Um, Athena identifies herself with the city and all the citizens who are citizens of Athens will have this sense of 
of a common identity, one with each other, that will make possible this kind of transformation. So, we're, it's just not a, a superficial <coughs> shift. The, the shift that takes place from Argos to Athens at the end represents bringing into being a, a new concept of the human person. So what is that? How do we name it? And are there resemblances between that and Christ? I know, I know this isn't Christ. I know this isn't Christ. But are, are, once again, are there intimations of him in what's taken place here at the end of the humanities? Any last thoughts on that? Could you restate that question a little bit differently, Bob? Put, I mean, put simply, Mark, I'm just asking, you know, if you, it, it's, a, it's a little bit, I mean, I know it's hard because it asks everybody to hold on to three plays, you know, and, and I've, I've made the point before, we can re read each play alone. It's a, each play is a completed work, but each play forms, takes, forms a part of a trilogy, and what I'm asking now is to hold that whole trilogy in your mind to go back to the Agamemnon when he returned and Clytemnestra kills him, to the Eumenides where the, you know, the libation bears come out and pour libations on Agamemnon's grave and we hear about the dream and then Orestes kills his mother. And now we're going to Athens and for the first time the Furies that who, who have been so active in these vengeful acts, this vicious cycle that keeps repeating itself, you know, parents inflicting these wounds on their children. Something happens at the end to to resolve it, and it 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 can't just be looked at in terms of the family. It's it's a city that becomes involved as a city that helps resolve these problems. So that I'm asking everybody for a moment to just you know, try to put that whole thing together and describe the change that takes place from this old world to this new. And are there any ways in, in, in which we find in them intimations of Christ? Is there, I know it's not Christ, I know that, but um, something, something if, you, if, you, if you just read the Agamemnon and watch this cycle repeat itself and then go to the end of the Humanities and watch what happens with Athena, you have to say, this is an amazing conclusion that um, suddenly this vicious anger to want to get back is quieted, and not only quieted, transformed. They become the blessed ones. So an amazing transformation has worked. So what happens? What is it? And are, does it intimate, does it point to Christ anyway? Fred, go ahead. I don't know if, if this is it, but something is, as I look back on it, I, the, the transformation that I kind of see is you go from everyone ha kind of having a singular focus. It's more about me and what's important to me to a, a more communal brother's keeper kind of focus. And I think for me, the attractiveness of being in that environment, particularly to the Furies, where there is, you know, a, a collective value, and and each 
each part of that whole reflects the value of the rest and, and Athena's whole effort to, to not just completely dismiss the Furies because with Zeus behind her, she, perf- she, she certainly could have done that. But for her, the whole value was to bring them into that communal collective. And as I just kind of look back through the three plays, you sort of see that focus going from it's all about me to it's all about us. Yeah, yeah, really good. Yeah, really good, friend. Anybody else? Any thoughts? Heavy stuff. I mean, it really is because, you know, if you, if you think about this on a mythic level, the violence that's committed is awful. It's just horrible. And we're and I to me it's real. It's always here. I I don't think things I don't think things have changed. We don't have to look very far to find violence in our world. You can call it karma. There is something demanding revenge that that crimes be answered, that they not be ignored or covered up. To give over to the Furies is just to give over to that old way of. I, mean, I thought Fred's way of describing it was really good. That I want vengeance. It's personal. I. I've been hurt. I've been wounded. I want. I want my say. You know, I want I've, more than an eye for an eye. It's worse. So the the violence doesn't stop. What part of the beauty of it for me is um, that Aeschylus is not ignoring violence or the or the ugliness of it. He he faces it square on, but he also sees that there's this power in human beings to work with that violence somehow and transform it. The cost of it is real. Orestes has to kill his mother. So he's not a romantic. He's not gonna he's not playing with stuff. He's looking at the consequences of things, the awful things that sometimes have to be done that have a harsh quality to them. In a modern world like ours, we don't wanna we don't want generally I mean I, I think of our most of us are like the chorus. We observe, we watch on, we comment, we criticize. But actually being involved in that action is another thing. Um, I've spoken about this before. I mean, there's so many. The, uh, the Pope, some ages ago, looked at the West and called it a culture of death. There's so much violence going on in our world that gets covered up. Abortion is a, at the you know the top of that list. It's There are crimes. I mean, we you know we've got this wonderfully educated culture, but underneath it are things that are not not pleasant to look at. And Aeschylus is looking at these things and still finding a way in the natural order that answers them. One of the most important things for me in reading this trilogy is whatever we make of Athens, it cannot, cannot be separated from Athena, a goddess, a divine action. The very identity of Athens as a city, as a democracy, depends on its relationship to the gods. Athena identifies herself with the city. So there's no way to deal with any questions of justice without involving the gods. I mean, that's, that's, that's embedded in our concept of ourselves as a civilization. If our beginnings are Athens take her out of it, and what we've got are, the cycles will just, they won't stop. They'll go on. There's no answer to them. 
So our very concept of ourselves as a people, insofar as we identify with a community, a, a collective effort to you know, create a city, the city's been one of our great topics. Remember, the city comes into existence in our exile from God. Um, it depends on um, how, al al how alive we are to the work of gods in our lives. I mean, that's, that's at the heart of what Aeschylus is doing. So his vision of, or his understanding of the founding of Athens is very rich and very complex. I think it's very realistic um, and sort of amazing. If you compare Athens to other cities in the world, what Athens is doing is remarkable. You're not going to find that in China. You're not going to find that in Africa. You're not going to find it in Asia or, you know, South America. These are the beginnings of our civilization. So, okay, let's. Unless there's any other comments, let's go to Sophocles because once again, you're, we're not going to see it here in Oedipus Rex. In Oedipus Rex, we're going to be once again in one of these great cities. In this case, it's Thebes. But what happens to Thebes isn't going to be resolved until we get to Athens in Oedipus at Colonus. And once again, Athens is it's going to be represented in a way that shows us something different is going on in Athens that is not going on anywhere else. The shift from Thebes to Athens is like the shift from Argos to Athens. It represents a spiritual transformation, a change in our view of man. The, the, the city is a matrix. It's formative. A city will either help us bring out something potentially there in all of us, or it won't. It will work against us. I've said this before lots of times when we've been together. Plato's Republic is all about the connection between the human soul and the political city. If, if a political city is out of tune with the nature of a soul, that polity, that political system, will become destructive. That was Plato's great theme in the Republic. If the political regime is out of tune with the nature of the human soul, it will become destructive. So it's absolutely crucial that any polity rest on a good understanding of our human nature. If it's not in tune with our human nature, it's going to be doing something against us. It's going to be harmful. He will not help us realize whatever potential we have. No more? Any more before we... Okay. No? Tracy, you look like you've got something. Your audio's not on. Hit. Can you hit your... Yeah. <clears throat> I had to find it. I actually, I'm following everything you're saying, but I don't understand why the Furies gave in. <laughs> just because they found, you know, like, on the surface, it's just that Athena says, okay, you have a place. You know, I can't tell you strongly enough, like, how important that is. You have a place. You have a place. And then suddenly, suddenly, <laughs> they say, oh, okay. <laughs> And so I don't understand why they did that. I mean, I understand them as kind of, uh, in addition to what you're saying, I kind of read them as guilt, like Orestes' guilt 
feelings. Right. Um, so I can understand finding a, a place for them metaphorically, but in the play, it was more literal, and I don't understand that. Anybody? Carl, go ahead. Can you turn your audio on? I had a question. I'll wait for this one to complete. Does anybody want to... Fred, what's your response to Tracy's question? Well, I, I guess my interpretation of it was is that the, the Furies were looking at the life they had before, so to speak, in a sense that they were they were they were vilified, they were um, feared, and they looked at well, do I want that, or do I want to actually be part of something that is happy, uh, that I get to participate in someone's happiness or someone's accomplishment or it's kind of like, do I want to live in a world where I impact positive things, or do I want to have a place in the world while, where I, I evoke negative things? And they decided I'm going to go with the positive things. But that I may be wrong. But that's you think that it was um, that they that was in their role as justice. Well, I think it was. If, if you kind of go back, and, and maybe I just misread. But if you go back and look at what Athena said their role was going to be um, that 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 no one could be you know accomplish anything unless they were part of that uh, to me if, if, if I'm a fury I'd much rather be a part of that than chasing somebody off around all over the world you know trying to kill them uh, I, to, to me I guess it was kind of like you know divinity coming in and showing you a better way a happier way, a more pleasant way, and I, I guess when I look, you know, and I, and I know I'm not trying to say that that Christ is in this thing, but if you, if you try to draw a parallel between Christ coming in and saying, I'm not doing away with the law, I'm just making it better. To me, I, I kind of get that flavor here. You know, I'm not doing away with you, Furies. I'm just making you better. And they, and they signed off. But you know what do I know? <laughs> I'm a math guy. <laughs> yeah, you you are so full of it too. God, he's been doing that forever. Tracy, let me just add. Um, I, I I mean one of the one of the things that I I'm glad for your question. Um, one of the reasons that I wouldn't put it quite the way you did is because. Um, I can't remember how you said it, but why did they just give in? Because I wouldn't put it that way. The, the, the remark, one of the remarkable things that happens here, two things to say. One of the remarkable things that happens here is it's really clear that they don't cease becoming who they are. They're carried forward in giving their place. They make it clear, and so does Athena. If something bad happens, um, death of manhood cut down before its prime, I forbid. They have a say, so it's not like they've been um, cut off, or I don't even, the word that I'm looking for. They don't lose their voice. Not, um, cast, castrated, I mean, they're, these are 
feminine figures that's, you know, they don't lose their voice. They keep their power, and they make that girl's grace and glory find men to live safe with them. Grant you who have the power and owe steering spirits of law, goddesses of destiny, sisters from my mother here, in all houses implicate it, in all time heavy of hand, excuse me, on whom your just arrest befalls, august among goddesses bestow. They're still powerful figures. They have a voice. Athena's not shutting them down. So she's allowing them a place. That's why I said earlier, if, if an injustice is done, something's wrong, they're going to have a say. But the difference is they can't go back to that old way of doing things where it's just vengeful. I, I thought Fred's way of putting it earlier. There's something more going on. So that's the first thing to say. So they're not, they're not just being silenced. Um, Athena's making a place for them. That's, that's what's so powerful. She's not dismissing them. She's making a place... But here, here's what's, this is the second part. This is what's so crucial. Everything about this play reminds, and we're going to get this to Sophocles. It's, it's going to be one of my opening points. Socrates will say, I mean, sorry, Aristotle will say of Greek tragedy that the form of it that begins with Aeschylus and then in, in his mind become, um, reaches a perfection with Sophocles, the form of it is there's this action from something seemingly good to bad. There's a misfortune, something that happened. And there's an action involving a tragic hero that takes him into a darkness so that he has to face things other people don't, the chorus, the rest of the characters. We've seen that forever in, in almost all the works that we've read. But there's a point of recognition where the tragic hero suddenly sees something about himself that coincides with a turn, and he's changed. So this is what's so crucial for me. It goes to Fred's comment a minute ago, you know, Christ isn't here. But in a sense, if Marcy were here, it would, it would be the Logos. The Logos. That there is a rationality to nature that keeps reasserting itself against the stupid thing or the sins that men commit. Whatever disorders that men set into motion, and I take it that all of us do because we're all, we all carry sins, that because we're less than perfect, we do things that have consequences and they reach back and bite us all the time. But what all of these people are showing us is there's this logos, this rationality to nature that keeps reasserting itself. So if the, if the Furies are left to themselves, it will be nothing but vengeance. Blind, vengeful, I thought Fred's way, me, I've been wounded, I want my, I want my skin or you know, I want my... But what happens to them is that they, they still hold that place. They're still given their voice. They will assert themselves when somebody does something wrong. But they begin to take part of a larger action that moves them towards a greater good. Aristotle would call it this rationality in a tragedy that keeps reasserting itself, this recognition, the change. So that the, um, it, it's not just a black-white thing anymore. The Furies, Apollo, the Furies still have a voice, but they take part in a greater action involving a good greater than themselves. And I think that's meant to be one of the meanings of the justice that comes into existence in Athens that's peculiar to itself and peculiar to the West. We don't find it anywhere else in the world quite like this. Um, so I wouldn't say they gave in, I, I would say 
that because of Athena's wisdom and the way she treats them, she allowed she makes a place so that they can go ahead as who they are. That the, that's why justice needs to be done. If somebody does a stupid thing, they're going to pay for it. The Furies are saying that basically. You you can't undo you can't you can't deny justice. But what happens in the action of the play is that justice becomes a part of something larger than just vengeance or resentments or grudges. So in my mind, a real transformation takes place. The, the anger or fury or the grudges that the human soul is capable of holding on to can actually come to something better. And it, it's, it's one of the reasons for me that this points towards Christ. I mean, Christ is, he's going to take it deeper, but he, you know, he's, he, he's working off of what the Greeks discovered in the natural order What's, what we're capable of naturally, and giving it, taking it in exactly the same direction, but giving it a depth because there's a divine meaning that enters into it more fully. A, a God actually comes down and offers himself for, to, to, to take away that blood vengeance. You know, I want my own, um, that sort of thing. I don't know if that answers it still, but... Um, Carl, you had a you had a question or a comment or something? Well, I'm, I'm seeking clarification. Um, a while back, maybe ten minutes or so, you, I think, were condemning a lot of people, uh, not personally, but on behalf of just what's happening there, um, including a lot of Asia. I mentioned China, and then you said South America, and then you said Africa. And right after that, you were, I think, tying it to being out of touch with, um, um, with the human needs or human nature. Did I miss something there, or were you being, I think, uh, pretty blunt about how you feel and what it's related to for a lot of people on our globe right now? Well, I don't know. I, I didn't feel that I was condemning anybody, but, but I was making a criticism. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't have used the word condemning because that's not what I think or, but yeah, I do, harsh. but... Yeah, that was harsh, but it's in the absence of um, being in touch with their human nature. Um, they they could be in bad shape. <laughs> let, me, let me go back and see if I can restate this because I want to be careful here. I, I, would, I would not say of, of what I said that I was condemning anybody. But I would say clearly and stand by it that something happens in Athens that we don't find anywhere in the world, and it comes. The the Greeks would have called it in the. You know the tragedians or the philosophers who came out of that, they would have called it the logos. That insofar. Well, let's see. How to do this? How to do this? Boy, this is tough. When Christ came into the world, he chose 12 disciples. Um, when God called Abraham out, he pointed him towards the promised land. Everything about that is offensive to the modern world because the modern world would like to believe we're all equal and there's no differences between us. So anything smacking of preference or some chosen or some others, 
runs absolutely contrary to the modern ideological mind. So the modern mind finds that offensive. I mean, what's going on in America today shows that same kind of tension in the battles that are going on. It finds a Christianity offensive because there's because of that fact, um, you know, that God singled some people out. He chose some people, not others. He condemned some people, not others. That some people were better than others. That there's a way of life that's better. Everything that Christ did um, takes the form, expresses the belief that human beings have been given something, and um, when we work with the nature that we've been given, we're, we're more capable of realizing that good, whatever that goodness is. Something special was given to Greece and Rome that set the direction for Western civilization. And it, it set itself off from other cultures. When you put the cultures next to each other, Greek and Rome, next to, say, anything that's going on in Asia or someplace else, you generally find that um, that there is a difference. I mean, to put this in really overly simplistic terms right now, just I don't know that this is going to answer the concern you're expressing, but lots of people are coming from all over the world to America for a reason. Um, we believe in a democracy. That that belief has its roots in Athens. Um, we, we, we believe that there's something inherently contrary to our human nature in making one class of people better than another. We're not saying America, in its roots, is not making the claim that we're all equal. America does not say that because all of the founders know, we know too, that people are unequal. Some people are better at basketball than others. Some people are better musicians. Some people are better physicists than others. Some people are better scientists than others. You know, we're not equal. But politically, we did take the stand that no class division should keep people from becoming whoever they are. That they, those artificial things should get out of the way. The roots of that are Athens and Rome. They go through the Magna Carta, through all the history that we've gone through together, to America. Um, that something, there's a certain concept that we have of ourselves as human being that makes it possible for us as a people, not just individually, as a people to become better. The roots of that, I, I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable saying, are in Greece, in what we've been reading. And we're, and we're partly seeing why. Argos is in some ways an inhuman city. It's a city that's it's it's going to keep it. It has buried in it a principle of self-destruction, if I can put it that way. And the whole movement is to come out of that into a new way of life, so that people generally can have a better way of life. The same thing is going to happen in um, in uh, Sophocles. So I I mean I I think for you to say that I was condemning something is, I mean either I wasn't clear or I think you're misunderstanding what I'm saying because that is not what I was saying but I am saying as clearly as I can something very special is happening in Athens concerning our nature we if you read these plays and particularly if you put it together with the philosophic works if you were to read Plato's Republic or or Aristotle's say politics or some of his other works um, you, you'd see that we we 
there's a self-reflective quality entering the world in Athens and in Jerusalem that you won't find anywhere else in the world. Athens, Rome, Christ in Jerusalem, Old Testament, all of those things. Carl, go ahead. Did you did you have any further comments or? Uh, that helps, and I did back off from condemning. That was that was too harsh. But doesn't that leave the countries, the people, uh, the locations that you specified, to not have the kinds of feelings and governments that you're talking about? that are nascent in Greece and Rome. And I wasn't looking at it that way. I was probably uh, rose-colored glasses looking at much of the rest of the world. Yeah. What, I mean, one of the... I mean, I, do, I want to be careful here because I don't, I don't want to get into too much into politics in our time and away from the literature, but, you know, one of the, one of the signs of that confirms what I'm saying, just as an example. We had hundreds of thousands of people lining up, coming into America, because they wanted to escape the conditions in other countries. One of the values of America, I mean, it, it's, we're in a strange place. We, we're supposed to be a people of law and order. We have to keep law and order at our borders, or we're going to lose who we are. But one of the values of America is that implicitly, we stand in criticism of those other countries in the world that practice inhuman policies. I mean, America should rightfully condemn, I believe, I mean, some of you can disagree, that's why I don't want to go too much into politics. America condemns policies in China. I think they're inhuman. America condemns policies in some of the South American countries and in, um, you know, in some of the Asian countries. We stand, I mean, one of the images of it is, is a beacon of light that we, we present ourselves as being defenders of human rights um, when we're aware of countries who, who, who practice things that are so corrupt, who so take for granted human life that it makes for inhuman conditions. That's true all over the world. I, I'm not going to romanticize what goes on in countries. Um, um, and I'm not trying to glorify America because I'm, I'm too aware of our faults. But I am saying here, with respect to the literature that we're reading, is that something entered the West that's really important. And I'm actually, I mean, if I'm going to be political for a minute, it bothers me a lot. It's enough for me to teach this because I'm, my worry right now is we're losing it. And my own belief is to the extent that we do lose it, we're going to slip back into the kind of conditions we're seeing in other countries, that we will become less of what we were set out to do as a country. And there are all sorts of signs of that happening right now. So the literature for me is not just literature. I think you all know that, that there's an extraordinary wisdom in what we're reading that, that can help us live better lives. Um, I don't want, I'm getting more political than I wanted to get here, but... But I, I myself don't have any question that something amazing is happening here that is not happening anywhere in the world. And if you looked at the conditions in any other countries um, and you put the two next to each other, you have to say, holy cow, 
And, and it seems to me you do the same thing with Christ. That when Christ came into the world, he revealed something that set apart what he was asking of people because what he was asking would make it possible for them to live better lives than people who didn't follow him. That people following other religions will not be able to have the kind of complete life that Christ offers because he is the way, the truth, the, you know, all of those. Because there are differences um, in the way we understand ourselves. And they affect us politically. I'm going to be honest for a minute. I'm sorry to go here. I'm really angry at America right now. Truly angry. I mean, I, there's, there's lots of... I mean, I'm an American. I, I would not leave this country any more than I would leave my Catholic faith. I, I don't care how much corruption is going on in my faith. I will not leave it. I'm not going to leave this country. I have lots of bad things to say about it. I do not want to go to another country. I will not leave this country. It is my country... I was born. I don't like a lot of what she's doing right now. Um, but I think we have something other countries don't have. And I want to see us hold on to it. Or I wouldn't be teaching this course. Or yelling at Mark. Or, or, or calling you on your damn use of con condemnation when it has no place, Carl. <laughs> Suzanne's making faces at me right now. <laughs> She's telling me to cool it. No, I'm not going to cool it. <laughs> Sorry. I, my anger at my country is pretty serious right now. I think our country is in real danger. But unless anybody has any more comments, we. But I'd be glad. I don't want to. I don't want to. Anybody else? Julie, Mark, Sue, any of you? Sorry for that. <laughs> I take politics really seriously. Suzanne shaking her head and going, no, you're not. <laughs> Julie, do you have something? Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to say, don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Actually, Bob, I have... On my screen, all I can see is your head and a little bit of the books behind you. So it gives me this rear window scenario where your wife decides to brain you in the back of the head with a frying pan, but we can't see who it is, so it ends up being this great mystery. Don't tempt me, Mark. <laughs> Did you hear her? <laughs> By the way, she does not need any tempting. She gets enough, she gets enough from me already. You guys ready to start, Sophocles? I want to get to a... I'm going to do something really quickly here, if I can. Um, just a couple of general areas, thematic concerns that I want to put out um, that I think will help us in our reading. Um, you know that one of the concerns that I have tonight, I, I tried to convey in that letter, I, I don't know that I did a good job, but that um, Freud, um, in a sense, I, and I'm not exaggerating this, if you look at literary criticism today, by the way, this is, to, this is just to reinforce the point that I'm making, and those of you who are not in literature wouldn't know it, but if you were to read literary 
literary criticism today, I mean, you're not going to, it's not your field. 90% of the literary criticism being written today is Freudian. It's, it's Marxist or feminist or Freudian. And insofar as it's Marxist or feminist, it'll have an understructure of Freudian thinking. It's just largely Freudian. Because the dominant mindset of people reading literature is scientific. It goes back to what we were talking about in Hemingway's world or Dostoevsky's world. That all of these scientific discoveries were based on the belief that there are these determinisms, that these things that can't be changed. Remember, the basis of science is what can't be other than it is, these laws. They're inherent in our nature. So Freud tried to use science as a way of understanding human soul and develop these theories. And they, 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 they have captured the modern mind. The greater part of literary criticism today is Freudian. Um, it's, it's the way they approach literature. So to go back to Sophocles, Oedipus Rex is not small for me because it goes back to one of the most important influences for Freud. So it's, it's inherent in our popular mindset, whether we're aware of it or not, or whether some scientists will dismiss it, you know. There are lots of scientists, by the way, I mean, following up what Fred said, there are lots of scientists who believe Freud is not scientific. I believe that. I think Jung believed that. It would be what um, Harold Bloom, who's one of the most important critics in the modern world, who is Freudian, absolutely Freudian, says that Freud is not scientific that he's speculative, that his whole mode of thinking is speculative, but he presents it as if it's scientific, and most people take it as if it's scientific, that these are laws of our nature, they're unchanging. What was true then is true now. So for me there's a real importance in going back to this to look at what this work says, but to keep in mind its its role in the modern mindset. So. Um, for me, this is a, a really important work for us, um, for lots of reasons. Let me just touch on a couple of major concerns that I think would be important for all of us to have in mind. Aristotle looked at Oedipus Rex as the paradigm of all tragedy. I, I'm going to repeat that. It was the paradigm. It was the exemplar of all tragedy. I want to wait before I give a reason for that, because I've it, it has to do with the play itself, so I want to come back to that because I think, I think he's right. I think something's going on in, in Oedipus Rex that is not going on in as focused a way in Aeschylus. So I want to make that clear. Aristotle says this is the paradigm of all tragedy. So my question is why? I believe he's right, but I don't, I don't want to go there. I want to come to it in a minute. You remember that, according to Aristotle, um, all tragedy um, involves an action from good fortune to bad. Something happens to turn things. The tragic hero um, com commits a wrong, a, a hamartia, a fault, and the consequences of that get played out, and suddenly what, what was once good fortune turns bad. It's exactly what happens when somebody commits a sin and the consequences of it um, affect people. But he said all good tragedy, the best tragedy, um, always contains an anagnorisis and a peripatia. 
Anagnorisis, you all know, is a recognition. Anagnorisis, to see. A moment of recognition. And a peripatia, a turn, what the church calls um, a conversion. So if you look at tragic action, we've gone through this countless times. It's a little bit like we're going through life and suddenly something happens and the rug gets pulled out from beneath us. And we look around and think, I thought I saw everything the way it was. You know, I thought I knew things. Just the way Oedipus, just the way Oedipus did. I thought I understood things. Everything I saw was clear. And then suddenly I had a moment where I realized things weren't the way that I saw them at all. And a change takes place. So he said, great tragedy um, involves the action of the peripatia, a turn. Every Jane Austen novel, for those of you who are, every Jane Austen novel is the action of the peripatia. Every one of them involves a turn. It's what makes her so brilliant. Every Shakespeare play involves a turn. I think every major work, the Iliad, the Odyssey, we could go through every work that we've read, they all involve a turn in the action. I don't want to go into the reason for that right now, but so that's his description of the structural movement of tragedy. Um, the theme of the city, it has been one of the great themes of all of our works. Thebes was founded by Cadmus. He was a hero, a great, great hero. Um, he lost his sister and set out in search of her. And the gods told him to stop looking and found a city where this heifer, this this heifer would settle. He found one and a dragon was guarding the city and he did battle with the dragon and defeated the dragon. He was told by the gods to plant the teeth of the dragon. He planted them and all these great figures rose up. Um, there was a great battle. I think five men survived, something like that. And um, Cadmus and these five men went on to become the founders of this great city. So there are these dynastic lines these great, great men. So the, the self-identity of Thebes is its greatness, its heroic stature. These five men and the tribes, it's like Islam or any tribal world, Indian or... Um, if, those of, if, if you remember back when we did Chaucer, the Knight's Tale, remember that um, um, Theseus had just come from Thebes. Remember, and the two, the two cousins were fighting each other because they belonged to those noble lines. The whole action moves towards Athens. It's away from that excessively noble sense of human beings have of themselves that can create so many problems. So wherever the, there, in any culture in the world, wherever these dynastic lines, there are these inherited distinctions that get passed down. The pride, the envy the resentments, the feuds. So the beginning of Thebes was noble, it was high, and it created these dynastic um, families. Some men were greater than other men, okay? Oedipus comes to the city and it distinguishes himself because he's the one who, who answers the riddle of the of the Sphinx. Remember that the Sphinx had this riddle, what, what walks on three legs in morning and two legs at noon and or no four legs in morning and two legs at noon and three legs in 
in evening. It's a child and a adult and then an old man with a cane. And the, um, the, the Sphinx destroys herself and he's asked to be king um, because he's the one that saved the city from this. So he's heroic. He's very intellectual. He prides himself on his cunning. One of the great themes is the blindness of intellectual pride, that he so prides himself in being able to get answers to things, to solving problems, except he suddenly encounters a problem he can't solve, and it infuriates him. It, it so touches his pride that he begins to do strange things he didn't do before. Um, the question of the universality of evil um, Freud's going to say that all men, that, um, that nature is unchanging, human nature is unchanging, that it's fixed, that all men are inherently evil, and that they're, um, they have these impulses that are inherited, inherited, they can't, all people have them, um, some people work them out in one degree or another. In a number of scenes in Oedipus Rex, Oedipus comes to a point where he, where he says, am I evil? Am I damned? You know, when he begins to see that there's something wrong with him, he will begin to accuse himself of being evil and damned. Is he? Was he? So he said, I was damned from my birth. So one of the major questions of the play is, is evil inherent? Do all men have it? Are all men fated? Maybe one of the most major, most important questions of the, um, the play. Does man have free will? Or, um, or is he fated? There's a good reason for, um, for asking that. Um, it'll get to the question that I asked about um, Aristotle a minute ago. But those are some of the major themes um, of the play. Um, what I'd like to do right now is, very quickly if I can, I want to go through some of the major scenes in the play to get to this fundamental question I have when, you, when Aristotle says it is, it is the paradigm of all tragedy. Um, see if we can answer why he says that and why it's important for us to read this play. Can you go to the, the opening? Let's just go to the opening. You all have the Fitzgerald edition. Is that the edition you guys have? Which one do you have? Yeah, the Oedipal Cycle. It's, it's Dudley Fitz and Fitzgerald, right? That's, yeah, okay, good. Um, I, I hope the page, maybe the pages have changed, but go to the very beginning. The play opens with lots of citizens on the step of the palace supplicating Oedipus because of a plague. And it's learned that the reason for the plague is that the killer of the king, the former king, is present and has to be expelled. The city has to be purged. And they're turning to Oedipus because they've relied on him because he's so bright, he's so smart. 
Oedipus comes out in the very beginning and he says, this is really important on page 4, the bottom of the page, you are not one of the immortal gods we know, yet we have come to you to make our prayer as to the man surest in mortal ways. He's the wisest of mortals because of what he's done and wisest in the ways of God. Now, I hope everybody's hearing the irony here because everybody's saying how wise he is and yet what the play is going to show is how blind he is. That um, if, we, if we see that there's something universal in us, it's that those people who think they're the wisest very often don't see what they don't see. Um, and the wisest in the ways of God, you saved us from the Sphinx, that flinty singer, and the tribute we paid to her so long. Yet you were never better informed than we, nor we could we, nor could we teach you. It was some God breathed in you to set us free. So he's he's the best of mortal men. He's the one who knows the ways of gods, and the gods apparently are working through him. He says on page five below, "Poor children, you may be sure I know all that you long for in your coming here. I know that you are deathly sick, and yet sick as you are." Not one is as sick as I. Each of you suffers in himself alone. His anguish not another's, but my spirit groans for the city. He identifies himself with everybody. It's going to be important to see this because Jocasta, when she kills herself, makes it clear that her remorse is for herself. She's actually closer to the Furies, in, in, you know, in Fred's definition a while ago. She, she She's more concerned about her own self. In fact, Oedipus is going to say it's because she's a queen and her sense of nobility is greater. But it's really important to see that he identifies himself with the city. On page 7 he says it again, let them all hear it. It's for them I suffer more than for myself. Okay. Creon says, by exile or death, blood for blood, it was murder that brought the plague wind on the city. Oedipus knows that. He's already sent for messengers to try to find out who the murderer is. Um, on page 9, Once more I must bring what is um, dark to light. It's most fitting that Apollo shows, as you do, this compunction for the dead. You shall see how I stand by you, as I should to avenge the city and the city's God. He's doing everything he can. And I mean... It, I don't think anybody could do more. He so identifies himself with the city. He wants to do all he can to answer this wrong, to avenge the city and the city's God, and not as though it were for some distant friend, but for my own sake to be to be rid of evil. Whoever killed King La Laos might, who knows, decide at any moment to kill me. So he wants to do everything he can to answer this wrong. Okay. Now, go on over. The chorus denies that it had any involvement in what's going on. Um, Teresia is asked for because Oedipus knows that Teresia is, is a seer. He can see everything. Um, when he calls Teresius, um, Teresius doesn't want to answer him on page 17. He says to everybody, and here's the crux. I, I know this is early in the play, but I'm going to call it the beginning of the climax. This is way, way early, but it seems to me the climax starts here. 
Oedipus is aware of the plague. He knows what's caused it. He wants to do everything he can to answer it. He calls in Tiresias because Tiresias is a prophet. Tiresias is blind, but he has an inner sight. So he can see in a way that other people can't. He's a little bit like Cassandra. He's got these prophetic powers. He says on page 17, Oedipus says, Tell us, Tiresias, you are all ignorant. No, I will never tell you what I know. Now it's my misery. Then it would be yours. What you do know something and will not tell us, you would betray us and wreck the state. I do not intend to torture myself or you. Why persist in asking? You will not persuade me. What a wicked old man you are. You try to stone, you try a stone's patience out with it. Have you no feeling at all? Now hold on, just because I want to. This is Harold Bloom, who's, who's one of the most important literary critics of our time and absolutely Freudian in everything he does. And he says this. Um, if we have an unchanging nature, then the past should have an unchallenged authority for us. We can learn things from the past. So Freud, as a scientist, would have gained if he could find anything in the past because if it was true, it would be as true for us today, because our nature is unchanging. If we have an unchanging nature, then the past should have an unchallenged authority for us. But Freud's therapeutic design intends the undoing of our histories. Not only is individual sexuality to be liberated from the family romance, because we can't, because the things that inspire us are so dark that we just can't entertain romances the way we have forever because something dark is moving us. Not only is individual sexuality to be liberated from family romance, but thought itself is to be freed of its necessity of its necessarily sexual past. Freed at least in a few elite individuals strong enough to bear their own freedom. But only those, only those conditioners, this is C.S. Lewis, only those who could see it would be free. But I want to go back to this line. Um, but Freud's therapeutic design intends the undoing of our histories. Because Freud's premise is that our nature is unchanging, so we can learn something from the past that might be important. Now you know, or I think, most of you know, that one of Freud's, Freud's major theories was that um, the most important thing that could go on in therapy is to um, to get at whatever is repressed in every one of us. His claim is that um, repression is the most important thing at the heart of his system. That all people have these unconscious desires, they repress them, and the function of therapy is to get through to them so that they can be seen for what they are and worked with. Okay. So the most important thing is to answer oppression. Um, now you know that the, for the Jews, for Freud, I mean Freud hated normative Judaism, but he was very Jewish and acknowledged that. For the, for the Jewish people, one of the most important things was to always remember to not forget the past. To never forget the past, to carry it forward and relive it. 
And um, so much of what Freud wanted to do was answer repression because he believed that all people um, have repressed desires and it's important to get through them if they're going to be healthy. So um, right now, Teresius is saying to everybody, he knows something, they don't. Everybody else is ignorant. Oedipus claims to know something, and it's going to turn out that he doesn't know anything at all. Um, and the first thing that he does when Theseus says, you're all ignorant and I'm not going to tell you, is he accuses him of being the murderer. And you know that when Creon comes in, he's going to accuse him the same. Now just for a moment, put this in Freudian context, because Freud's going to say, the first thing that happens when we're confronted with our own sins is what are we going to do? Blame somebody else. Accuse somebody else. But what we do is deflect the wrong from ourselves and point our finger at somebody else. Okay? So right here, you've got sort of the, the, the fundamentals of Freudian psychology. You've got a guy claiming to know something he doesn't. Freud's going to say he's repressed it. And that when he's confronted with something that he doesn't understand, he's going to point his finger and accuse others. Here he's doing it with Theresius, and then he's, um, he's going to do it with Creon. Um, where does he... I think this is the curse on page 21. That this doesn't have lines, Doc. Um, so yeah, it's page 21 in this text. What um, what Oedipus is going to do when he's confronted with um, Tiresias, and then later with um, Creon is curse them and he's going to show how right he is by doing that um, because by being as emphatic as he is that somebody else is wrong it makes him look more innocent so on page 21 um, the chorus wants to dis um, to distance itself from any wrongs and it does that um, Theresius says, you are a king, but where arguments concerned, I'm your man as much as you are. I'm not your servant, but Apollo's. I have no need of Creon to speak for me. Listen to me. You mock my blindness, do you? But I say you, with both your eyes, are blind. You cannot see the wretchedness of your life, nor in whose house you live, nor with whom. You are your father and mother? Can you tell me? Who? Who are? You do not even know the blind wrong." that you have done them on earth and in the world below. But the double lash of your parents' curse will whip you out of this lansom day with only one, with only night upon your precious eyes. Your cries then, he says, what will they do? Be angry. Curse, curse, Creon, curse my words. I tell you, no man can walk upon the earth. I tell you, no man that walks upon the earth shall be rooted out more horribly than you. Am I to bear this from him? Damnation, take you out of the place. Um, 
Here's the cruise. Go back to page 13 for a moment. So as soon as he's confronted by Tiresias, Tiresias is going to tell him how blind he is. He will do the same thing with Creon. When he first finds out about what happened, he knows um, that the cause of it is that the killer of Laios, the king, is present somehow. This is what he says. And this is what's both so Freudian and is going to lead to my question about um, why Aristotle believes that this is the greatest tragedy. When he learns that there's a plague and the person who's responsible is in his kingdom and he's actually the murderer of the king, the former king, this is what he does. Page 13. If anyone knows the murder to be foreign, let him not keep silent. Come out. Um, if he does conceal it, any man fearing for his friend or for himself disobeys this edict, hear what I propose to do. I solemnly forbid the people of this country where power and throne are mine ever to receive that man or speak to him no matter who he is or let him join in sacrifice, lustration, or in prayer. I decree that he is to be driven from every house, being as he is, corruption itself to us. The Delphic voice of Zeus has pronounced this revelation. He's speaking for God. Thus I associate myself with the oracle and take the side of the murdered king. As for the criminal, I pray to God, whether it be a lurking thief or one of the number, I pray that that man's life be consumed in evil and wretchedness. I want whoever did that murder to be consumed in evil and wretchedness. And as for me, this curse applies no less. If it should turn out that the culprit is my guest here, sharing my heart, you have heard the penalty. I lay it on you now to attend to this. For my sake, for Apollos, for the sixth sterile city. Here's the sterile city. The earthly city that's constantly plagued by man's faults. For the sick, sterile city that heaven has abandoned, Suppose the oracle had given you no command. Should, you, should this defilement go and cleanse forever? You should have found the murderer. Your king and noble king had been destroyed. If I had not been around, you would have wanted to do this. But since I'm here, know this for a fact. Now I, having the power that he held before me, having his bed, begetting his children there upon his wife, as he would have, had he lived. If I weren't here and the, sin continued to, the, the king continued to live, their son would have been my children's brother if Laos had had luck in fatherhood. But surely ill luck rushed upon his reign. I say, I take the son's part, just as though I were his son, to press the fight for him and see it won. I'll find the hand that brought death to Labdacus's and Polydorus's child, heir of Cadmus and Agenor's line. And as for those who fail me, may the gods deny them the fruit of the earth, fruit of the womb, and may they rot utterly. Let them be wretched as we are wretched and worse. For you, for loyal Thebans, and for all who find my actions right, I pray the favor of justice and of all the immortal gods. Now let me just go back to summarize this for a second. So, Theseus, Theseus confronts him, says, you're the murderer. He denies it and says, I'm not. Because in his own mind, he's not. He says, you are, because 
in his mind, he has reason to think that. And then when he meets with Crean, he's going to say the same thing to Crean. The Crean has betrayed him. He wants power. He and Tiresias have um, made an alliance. Put that together now with this scene where he puts a curse on the person who committed the, the crime. What's the irony here? And what, what in, I'm going to, I mean, I, this is making a judgment, but I, I want to get to this quickly. But if, if, if Aristotle's right, then Sophocles is doing something not even Aeschylus did. What's the irony here, and why is it so deep? And is there some way in which Freud is right? Let, let's wait on that until I... But I'd like to get to the first... What's, what are the ironies here? What's going on? Why are, and why are the ironies so deep? I'm really not sure how to answer that question, Bob, but isn't this play kind of the definition of irony? Why... <laughs> Explain that, Mark. No, explain it. You start here, and then you start, you know. Flesh that out, I mean, if you can. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, you're getting to Aristotle's point, but can you just flesh it out some to make it clear? Well, I mean, he, he's, he, he's, he's, he's an individual standing on his principles, not knowing that he is going to be, I guess held accountable to those same principles because he thinks he didn't do it, right? So is, is it one of those, you know, I, I know that I am so uh, benevolent or good or whatever that this would never apply to me, therefore I can make this judgment. Right, right. And, you know, in his own mind, and I don't, I don't, I, I don't think it's repressed at all, I think in his own mind he starts to put two and two together and figure out, oh, darn, this is, I got a problem here. <laughs> um, but then at the end, you know, he punishes himself greater than anybody so that, you know, he does take on and he doesn't get out of his own, you know, he doesn't pardon himself, let's say, you know, he, he's just as harsh on, his, on himself as he would be on anybody else. So there's the nobility, integrity and honor and that kind of thing. Um, but it's 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 ironic, I guess, in in the truest sense of the word. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I think this is. I mean, I'm no, I'm not a literature guy, but this is kind of. I, I don't know of anything earlier where this is where I. I mean, this is kind of where irony starts, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think it's it's there in Aeschylus, but I want to hold off on my job. I want to hear from you guys. Did somebody? I didn't. Fred, did you? I. I you look like you're gonna move forward or sue or somebody did any of you have a response to well he, he defines his own ending in a sense he he condemns himself without knowing it and I mean that's I, I agree with Mark that's kind of the definition of irony all the things he's saying it never occurs to him that that he's saying it toward or for himself of himself yeah of himself yeah Fred, go ahead. I no, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, this is not only the paradigm of tragedy, it's the paradigm of irony. And I mean the, the, the paradigm of tragedy is in the sense that he he is creating his own tragedy by virtue of his of his decrees. So it's 
it's like he's writing the tragedy himself. Yeah. Um, I wish I could. I'm not quite sure how to get there. Freud would make this a universal principle. Um, without going to Freud, the sexuality part of it. Um, can we make a universal statement about this? I mean, Aristotle. I, th I mean, you're all you, you're all hitting on it. So, I think this is the reason that Aristotle said it was the paradigm because I'm not a, I'm not aware of another play in which the irony is so sharp, so deep. Um, if, I mean, he he taught Dante, Shakespeare, Austin. You know, I mean, this is the irony of ironies. So good writers would learn something from this. Freud drew a conclusion that I don't think is warranted, but I don't want to go there. Is, it, is there something universal to, to what's happening here? Le if we can leave the sexuality out of it for a second. If we can't, go ahead. I, I don't want to... But I, I'm struck by the universality of this, and I want to, I want to get to that if I can. Can anybody make a comment? What do you mean by universality? It applies to everybody. What's going on here... Wait, here, let me put it differently. Freud would take this as a determinative principle that, that this was an instinct in all human beings, all human beings. And he would go from that to say people repress it, they don't want to deal with it, therapy helps get it out. But, but he made it a universal principle. He said this, defined, this is a defining thing of all human beings. And a popular culture believed it. It, it informs almost all literary criticism today. Most literary critics will, will assume these principles and approach literature with those in mind. But my question is, is there, is there, is there something universal to it? Can, can we describe it? So go ahead. Well, I had a thought, and I don't know if it exactly fits, but it's this kind of paradigm that when you point a finger at someone else, three are pointing back at you. And that's what kind of occurred to me during this, that, that whenever the universality is whenever we are judging others, we need to be very careful about looking at our own faults and that often our judgment of others is the universal part of we would be better off to look and apply those same criteria, judgments, standards, whatever we call them, to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Anybody else? Fred, go ahead. Yeah. Well, to me, kind of the question in, in, in terms of whether Freud was right or not is, and you know, I... I, I confess I don't understand all the conscious and subconscious and sub subconscious and all of Freud's, you know, theories. But to me, it, it kind of comes down to did somewhere in in his subconscious did Oedipus really believe that it might have been him, or was he truly, as the play would seem to imply, he was totally surprised by the fact that it was. You know, I don't know how it can be repressed exactly. unless he actually, deep down in his mind, suspected or or knew that it was probably him. Yeah. 
And that and, doesn't come out in the play to me. Yeah. I mean, to me, in the end, he doesn't really start to but to get the sense that it's me until, I mean, okay, so yeah, the, 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 the soothsayer kind of, you know, dropped it right here, and I understand why you say it's the climax, but when I, as I read the play, it didn't really, he didn't really start getting clarity until the conversation with his wife. Right. She described, right. she knew about the sequence of events, and it was then that he started to think, oh, it might be me. And so I don't see how, if that's true, I don't see how Freud can be right. Yeah. Let me, um, I, I want to, boy, this is so, I'm so glad for this. I don't think he knew either, although there's that line by Jocasta where she says, all men dream of sleeping with their mothers, and you know what I mean? So there's, you know, there's something universal to that. But it, it seems to me, no, it doesn't seem to me, the, the, what the play shows is that, um, that she begins to realize something that she didn't know when he begins to realize and they start putting things together. And he doesn't have any trouble once he starts putting things together because he's the sort of man who wants to figure out things. So it's only when he starts putting things together that he sees in fact that he did it. So I'm not with Freud here, but I, but I, but I want to go with Freud in a minute. But somebody else had, somebody else had something or... Julie, yeah, did you have... Sorry, Mark, go ahead. I remember having a personality theory class many, many moons ago where we went over Maslow and Rogers and Young and Freud and everybody. And at the end of that, and I was thinking about that class when I was reading this because of a Oedipus's own, I guess, mental gyrations and trying to figure it out. He's trying to figure out what went on in his own mind. Did I do this? Did I do that? Right. Well, at and first, hold on, Mark. At first, he's not. He's first. He, he doesn't say, "Did I?" At first, he wants to. Who's the killer? Well, and, correct. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, as he starts yeah, to find yes, out information, yeah, yes, his mind starts yes, to work. Yes. And and in the end, this whole thing is a search for the truth. And that took yes. me to my class, where after you read about all of these different psychoanalysts, psychologists, people like that, they're all a little bit different. They all have a few things in common, but they all kind of go their own different ways. And to me, it was always, the only thing you can change is yourself, right? You can't change anybody else. We all know that. But it was almost like Freud went the way that worked for him. Jung went the way that worked for him. Maslow and his hierarchy meets, it went, that's how he figured himself out, okay? And it's also Freud's whole thing with the mother, Okay, Freud was not raised by his birth mother. He was raised by his stepmother, who was evidently one hot little number. Okay, around town, and I'm, my my understanding from this whole situation is everybody wanted to sleep with Mrs. Freud. So it wasn't just little young Sigmund. Mark, so I, stop. In Williams of him figuring himself out. Oh God. There's things that bleed into this. Yes. Yes. <laughs> See how do I get us back? <laughs> oh, Mark! God! Oh, somebody save me! <laughs> Wait, hold on! I've got to, I've got to try to recover my thinking here. Hold on, Mark! I can't. Um, where was I going? Was there something universal here? Let me, let me offer. Here, here's one of my thoughts about Freud. One of the values with I want to, I want to call into question 
something, but you, I mean, you're all doing it, so I'm, I'll only be repeating what you guys are doing, but I think what you're doing is good. Seems to me one of the values of what Freud did, and I, I, I can't underscore this enough, and it's one of the reasons I think Aristotle looked at this as the paradigm of tragedy. It's, it's for the reason that Mark has been saying. I, the, you can't have a greater irony because this is a man searching for the truth. He puts a curse on the person who did this without knowing that it's himself. Because he has, here, I mean, to go to one of the discrepancies of Freud, he has no reason for thinking otherwise, and there's no evidence in the play that he's repressed it. He's doing everything he can to get at the truth and only slowly uncover And when he starts seeing things, he never denies it. There's no struggle there. So, But here's, the I think, the great contribution of, Troy, of Freud, and it seems to me one of the great contributions for this play and the reason that Aristotle said it's the paradigm of tragedy. Because what, what Sophocles did was lay bare the Pharisee in every human being. It goes to Sue's comment. I mean, she's right on. That every, so I'm going to put this in more universal terms, and it's what Christ came to answer, and it's why he took away the Jewish law, or, or didn't take it away, because I, I, you know my own thoughts about that. What he did was fulfill it, but he took the Jewish law away as an evasion for the sins, so the Jews couldn't say, look how good I am because I fulfilled the law. That's a Pharisee. What Christ did was take it away. What Sophocles is doing in preparation for that, I mean, it goes, Carl, it actually goes to the point that I was making. Something extraordinary is happening here. What Sophocles does is lay bare the Pharisee, that the minute some guy says, look how good I am, and then starts pointing his finger at somebody else, the great irony is he doesn't see his own sins. What, Soph what Sophocles is doing is saying, start with yourself. And by the way, I don't believe he's saying you can't change other people because you can. But you can't do it without starting yourself. I mean, we got that from Aeschylus. Aeschylus is doing the same thing. The great, the beauty of this play is you've got a man who, who takes the position that he does because he thinks he's so good. He, he's, it's, it's, I mean, the, the Jewish, so the Greek mind and the Jewish mind I mean, in, historically, at this moment, are actually coming together. They're both showing the same truth. We'll get it from the Old Testament. We'll get it from um, Sophocles. So the beauty of this is um, he makes it impossible any longer not to be aware, for anybody who's reading well, not to be aware of the Pharisee in ourselves. So nothing could be more painful because he wants the truth so badly and he doesn't even see. So the beauty of this is I, I'm not aware. Dante and Shakespeare are the only ones who get as deep as this. I'm not aware of another play in which the irony goes as deep. That's why Sophocles is so important to Dante, Shakespeare, you know, anybody else who comes after them. When, remember, what we when we were doing Dante together, the one thing that we saw is that what defines the people in hell is they've lost the good of the intellect. They don't know that they don't know. What, what Sophocles is showing us is that the people who think they have answers, particularly when they make judgments of other people, are very often concealing a Pharisee. They, they don't see the irony of their position. Everything in the Greek mind uncovered that. Everything in the Christian mind meant to uncover it. I, I mean, I, here's a, I don't want to take this question up, but look at the fundamentalist mind 
in Christianity today that begins by saying, I've been saved. How, how willing will somebody be who approaches the world with the attitude, I'm saved? How willing will that person be to, to look at the Pharisee in his or her own character? The great value here is that he has uncovered everything. I want to go to the yeah. I want to go to the sexual thing in a second, but I want to wait on that. Just any any responses? Go ahead, Kathy. Go ahead. Um, when I'm listening to you, it's almost like he's placed himself in the position of God. Yeah, he actually uh, does. I mean, he claims some right. divine help in that too. Right. And and which is something that going through life that we can be tempted to do the same thing. Yeah. When we refuse to look at our own sins and project them on other people. Right. That's what that's what Oedipus. That's what he does when he starts blaming Tiresias and then starts blaming. Right. You know, it's so ironic. I mean, you you could look at this play and almost find all the dynamics of Freudian psychology in it. Um, but I, I want to make one comment on Freud, and then I want to go beyond because I I don't want to get stuck in this, but. It seems to me one of the one of the values of Sophocles for Freud or any psychologist is that he lays bare the Pharisee. I mean that principally. Where I think Freud went wrong is um, in literally taking that um, that condition, that condition of pride and the blindness that comes with it. In our pride, we we don't see our sins. He rooted it in sexuality. So that he made the sexual act um, coterminous, coincident with the sin, and I—I I, I mean, I don't—I don't think that's true. Um, I, I believe that in our fallen condition, all of us are given to pride and blindness, but I don't—I—I I, Freud has no evidence that that's rooted in the sexual act that all men want to kill their father and all men want to sleep with their mothers. I think that's where Freud went wrong, but. Um, here's my uh, next. Sorry, yeah. I have one other question, and this may be totally offline, but didn't Augustine kind of do that? Not the mother, but as far as making sin um, a root, you know, of, of man's problem. I mean, that's at the. Augustine. I wouldn't put that to. I mean, I'd say all the. I mean, the whole church. Says the root of our problems is. I think she meant sex, and she said sex. Sex. I don't mean. I don't mean. I mean. You mean uh, sex? Sex. Yes. I'm sorry. I don't. I. I'm not a. I'm not a. I know a little bit about Augustine. I'm not aware of anything like that in him. What I do know, is that there's a strong Platonic strain strain in Augustine, and right. and he tended to look down on the body so that there would have been that association. But I don't know that even. Saint Augustine would have rooted it like this. Let me ask. Let me ask one question before we leave, because our time and we'll pick up. We'll pick up here, and next week let's plan to to go to Oedipus and Colonus. Okay, but here's my question, because it goes to the end of the play and what happens. You know that um, that um, Jocasta calls for, or the messenger comes to say that um, Polybos is dead, and for a moment Oedipus is relieved because. He was he was given that prophecy that he would kill his father, and now that Polybus is dead, he thinks that he's 
freed, and for a moment he has a relief. But then he learns that um, Pilatus was not his father, that he was actually given to this messenger by another shepherd who came from Laos's palace. And suddenly, degree by degree by degree, the story unfolds, and he learns that he is the killer of his father, and he's been sleeping with his mother. And you know that Jocasta, when she gets close to that, runs off stage. And by the way, a beautiful scene. <clears throat> the whole scene of the blinding is reported. And they, it was, unlike a modern, because it would have been um, obscene. The, the, the word in Greek, obscene, means off stage. We get it reported. We don't, it doesn't, it isn't performed um, in front of us. We learned that Jocasta hung herself and that um, Oedipus took the brooches from her dress and gouged out his eyes. I'm going to read it next week when we get together because it's just too important um, to leave alone. But here's my question, um, and I'd like to pick up here next week. If anybody has any quick responses, I'd be glad to take them, but just briefly. Um, is the view to be taken away from Oedipus Rex that man has no free will and that everything that happens is fated? Because that's one of the major themes of the play. You know that Laos and Jocasta sent Oedipus away as a baby because they'd had the prophecy that um, their child would um, kill the father and marry the mother. And that, um, and that the same thing occurred... Um, when he was in Corinth, that some guy said he would kill his father, and he ran off, thinking to escape that fate, and it's then that he ends up killing Laos at the crossroads, and goes to Thebes, and ends up sleeping with his mother. So there are a number of prophetic utterances that are offered, and um, each time somebody tries to escape them, um, something happens to get around them. So that what happens at the end is a fulfillment of the prophecies. So my question is, according to this play, does man have free will not or not? Is he fated? Um, what would have, and this is purely speculative, what would have happened, or can we speculate on the question, what would have happened if um, um, Laos and Jocasta had kept their son? You know that during the middle of the play, when Jocasta comes on stage, one of her functions is to make clear what happened. And very slowly, she begins to see, but during that interval, while she's on stage, she keeps saying to him over and over and over again, don't pay attention to the oracles, they don't come true. She, she's, she's an image of a modern skeptic, except it ought to be clear, skepticism is not modern, it's as ancient as the world. But she's absolutely skeptical. She keeps denying that the gods have anything to do with things. And finally, when she learns what happened, she kills herself. So how do we look at the role of the gods? Is Does man have free will or not? What would have happened if they had not sent away their child? Or if Oedipus had not fled Corinth? If he'd stayed there? Because every time in this play... When people try to escape their fate, they can't. So unless there's any quick comments, let's stop. And if anybody wants to make a quick comment here, I'm glad. But this is where I'd like to pick up next week because it's a huge question. Any 
According to Sophocles, does man have free will or not? No. No. <laughs> Nobody's going to take that no up? I don't, think, I don't think he thinks man has free will. I think he thinks fate. I mean, it's, for me, it looked like predestination. Yeah. I yeah. thought of you saying that about the Calvinists, and I thought, well, this is kind of like predestination. Boy. You know, particularly in those passages where when Oedipus begins to realize, he says, at my birth I was damned. So, but that, remember, that's, that's Oedipus. That's not, Sophoc that's not Sophocles. But oh, anyway, okay. well, I mean, we have to, you know, keep that distinction in mind. Ed or Sophocles is writing a play about this character. And by the way, just so you know, well, I, this is going to partly give it away. The next play we're reading, Oedipus is going to be happy. Nobody knows that today. Nobody reads the second play. We're going to see Oedipus blessed and happy. Anyway, so let's take up that question. Does man have free will or not? Okay. Awesome class. Thank you. <laughs> um, Oedipus, we'll, we'll pick up here next week, and then we'll also start Oedipus at Clonus, okay? You guys have a good week. All of you stay safe. Um, keep us in your prayers. Everybody okay? Good night. Night-night. Night. Night, you guys. What's he doing up there? Who? Oh, is it down here? He's down here now. I'm going to do this. Just hit stop and then hit.